0: Big Tech's Ordnance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdnance.com. Overwatch Precision is a team of civilians and combat veterans based in Phoenix, Arizona that employ industry-leading production methods, coatings, and materials in their striker-fired polymer-framed pistol trigger systems with an internal engineering team focused on thoughtful design. Overwatch's flat-faced and curved triggers safely deliver a mechanical advantage to your carry or duty Glock Walther CZ P10 and Smith & Wesson MMP 2.0 with improved function and increased accuracy. See more at overwatchprecision.com. Filster makes awesome holsters, but not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Philster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4 V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1 to 6 power first focal plane and rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free, with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com/government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit waltherarms.com. Hey everyone, Matt Lanfer here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to ModCast. Today is January 9th, 2023. We're going to be talking about more hunting stuff. Last episode I thought was really, really educational. It was a lot of fun. We talked about hunting in general, mostly rifle using firearms. Today we're going to be talking about archery and black powder hunting. Now these are concepts. These are are things that I have zero experience with. I can identify um, a bow and arrow. I can identify black powder. That's about the extent of my abilities in this realm. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because I have an awesome panel who are very experienced in this stuff. I get to sit back, I get to hear what they have to say, and then I get to go, hmm, this sounds like something I might be interested in. I wanna invest money in this and try it myself. That's mostly how, hell, that's how the wall came about. I wanna see this for myself. This is going to be a fun discussion. Unfortunately, and and before we started, we kind of discussed this. This is one of those topics that isn't going to get huge amounts of views. It's not going to be appealing to everyone. That's okay. To those that that are interested in this, this is going to be a, a fun discussion. You might pick up some things from some of these veteran hunters, some of these guides. Some of these guys have been doing it forever. That could help you. As a matter of fact, if you listen, you might determine, and if you're not a bow hunter or a black powder person, You might determine, you know what, this sounds pretty cool. I want to try this. So I'm looking forward to this. My background is in law enforcement, been doing the cop thing since last century, getting close to retirement age, uh, trying to figure out what to do next. I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, Primary and secondary, I think, is my, my retirement plan. We'll see. I might have to continue in law enforcement or do something gun industry. I don't know. We'll see. But that's enough about me. Let's get some backgrounds on some of these people. Since Craig has been here so frequently in the last several—I don't know how many episodes—so Craig and I, we've done a, a survival series, and we're not done with. I'm sure we're still going to think of some more stuff. Those have been awesome, absolutely awesome. Um, he was on the hunting panel uh, last week. I think I think he should he should start with our intros.
1: Well, that was awful nice of you. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm Craig Cottle. I'm the director of Nature Reliance School, headquartered out of Kentucky. Uh, We train people uh, both online with an NRS membership as as well as in-person classes related to survival, uh, land navigation, man tracking. We do that for average, ordinary folks as well as federal and state governments, and particularly man tracking. And uh, I'm the author of six books now. And all those are related to backcountry skills and stuff of that nature. I'm an avid black powder hunter. I've built some black powder firearms. Uh, I haven't been shooting and um, hunting with bows for quite a while, but when I was back in the day, I was a recurve shooter. So that's me, and I'm thankful to be here with this fantastic panel. Thank you for inviting me again.
0: Oh, my pleasure.
2: Anthony? Hey, uh, law enforcement officer for uh, just a little over 23 years, about 23 and a half years. Uh, Like you, Matt, I'm just getting pretty close to retirement. Um, Been a history nerd my whole life. Um, My degree's in history with a minor in uh, mid-19th century American literature. Um, Been interested in the whole, you know, Eastern colonial history. Uh, My first weapon, my first Firearm ever was a 50 caliber Hawkin, but um, just all into black powder hunting, uh, black powder shooting. Um, my bow is a hickory Cherokee style bow with river cane arrows. Haven't killed anything with it. I should add that, um, and just really trying to capture a little bit of of what
3: uh, our ancestors went through, and, uh, and then try to share that with folks. Got some things. hopefully coming down the pike here, part of this panel, I appreciate it.
2: And Dwayne?
3: Dwayne Lutak, <coughs> work for Magpul
4: Industries, uh, do lots of uh, modern stuff as part of that, but to keep things fresh, of course, it's uh, it's good to have deviations. I started out in black powder and traditional archery as a kid. Um we used to hunt with a 20-gauge fowler uh, as a young man and then a, a, a hawkin, and I've built rifles over the years. Um, I hunt with a longbow mostly every once in a while, I'll bring the wheelie bow out. If I, you know, something's going on and I don't have time to practice or as much time to be comp- as confident as I should be, but, uh, I still do uh, all that stuff. And I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of shoving black powder into cartridge cases as well. So I do quite a bit with, uh, sharps and paper patching, uh, you know, cast bullets to do that, took my bison that way and and a bunch of other game animals with that. And as well as you know, 1875 Winchester and 40 and 4575 with you know black powder and cast bullets and the whole deal. So do a lot of black powder cartridge as well as the, the smoke pole stuff. Cool. Justin. Um
5: uh, my back Justin Christensen, my background, uh retired from the military back in 2018 and uh my wife and i moved to north central wyoming where she allows me to do my hobby jobs as she calls them um i uh county search and rescue uh, ski patrol at our local heel i work as the main archery tech at our local sporting goods store Uh, and i'm also a a guide for big game hunters primarily mule deer and antelope uh, during the fall Uh, been shooting a bow in some way shape or form since i was about eight Started off with an old bear, golden bear recurve, um, did transition to compound about the age of 16 or so. And just recently getting back into what a lot of people are calling traditional archery now, which is recurve long bow. Um, and then muzzleloader wise, I've been shooting those as long as my dad was dragging me to rendezvous as a kid. Um. Uh, told him I wanted to hunt with the muzzleloader as a kid. And he told me if that's fine, you're going to learn how to build a muzzleloader then. So my first kit was Thompson Center. Like a lot of people um, still have that gun in the safe. Uh, It's since gone through a couple different stocks. Um, Just trying to fancy it up a little bit. It's just kind of one one of my hobbies. Um, I've also built uh, four or five flintlocks and a couple other percussions. It's kind of one of my little things that keeps me sane so um, I love to hunt with both but uh, primarily I am I am addicted to archery
0: that's the best way to put it is this the first time you've been on one of these
5: it's been quite a while I I I watched the hunting one the other day and I was like screaming at the screen I was like oh I've got so much to input on this but yes (laughs) it was a good one it was a good one
0: and for people that don't know you've been around primary and secondary behind the scenes since uh, about the beginning
5: yeah since you started yeah
0: yeah and last but not least santa i mean fred <laughs> uh
6: thanks That uh yeah this is my first time uh yeah. ever uh, this is my first time even ever doing a podcast really yes and people don't I'm, know who you are then no 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 clue Um, But uh, Fred Lucas uh, spent about 12 years in the Army, uh, six years as a contractor with the State Department. Uh, For the last 15, I've been a uh, government employee at a small uh, Navy base in Southern Indiana, working small arms and night vision uh, for, uh, well, pretty much everyone, but uh, a lot of it. The, the people that I used to support when I was on active duty. Um, but I'm also, I was, uh, like others, born into uh, the buckskinning and uh, black powder hobby. Uh, I recently just ran the 50th annual rendezvous for our local club, um, nice. and I'm 54. You know, dad <laughs> was part of the, the founders of the club, and uh, dad's also a bowyer, uh, my first bow was a, a Hickory Plains sinew-backed bow that I got about age five when I got my first set of buckskins. And uh, I, uh, you know, he currently builds English longbows, so I, I shoot his bows. Um, and then I've got a Howard Hill longbow uh, that I just picked up at uh, the Compton shoot last summer that is now becoming my main hunting mm-hmm. bow. So
0: I got the modern, I got the ancient. (laughs) So cool. So, before we started, we kind of discussed, okay, what direction should we go? How should we kick this off? Because for the most part, this is going to be a very open discussion. These guys are going to talk about what comes to mind and just go down that rabbit hole. And it was pretty much agreed. Why don't we discuss actually, why don't they discuss? I'm just going to listen. Why don't they discuss why? Why archery? Why black powder? What are these providing that other things don't? What are the advantages to it? So that's going to be our first question. I'm going to step back and let you guys fight over who's going to answer that. I imagine everyone's going to have a great answer. So
4: take it away. Anyone. All right, I'll jump in then. Uh, in the absence of others jumping forward, the uh, I started uh, hunting archery and uh, uh, flintlock because I grew up in Pennsylvania and got much longer seasons. Basically, and that's just I grew up in that area that everybody did. Everybody hunted archery, almost everybody hunted with a flintlock in the late season, the whole deal. Um, over the years, kept doing it. Um, went into compound stuff and and things like that, and moved away. Didn't do as much flintlock for a long time, but then at a certain point. Um, I just, I got it in my head that I wanted to do a regressive kind of method of take thing where I just went further and further back from, you know, modern stuff that, uh, I did all the time and then go back into single shot cartridge guns and black powder cartridge guns and flintlock stuff again. And, and, and all the way back to longbow with a wooden arrow. Uh, I didn't go any further back than that, but, um, and that, uh, and I just discovered that I enjoy, I enjoy traditional archery hunting a, a great deal. I enjoy uh, muzzleloaders, both building and, and shooting them, just the, the technology of the time, the whole, you know, pre-revolutionary war period. And, and you know, it's, that's, that was your thing, right? That was the, the only method uh, or the best method available, certainly, um, and I just, uh, I, I get a lot out of it. Um, it's a little more, it's certainly more challenging um, your ranges are shorter, especially with a traditional bow. Um, you have to be a little more savvy about getting, getting close to a critter. Um, and it just becomes a, a, a real achievement, especially when you make some of the stuff, right? If it's a rifle you've built, if you've done the arrows, you know, everything from spining to, to finishing to fletching to, you know,
2: pointing and the whole thing. That's, uh, that's just a more rewarding to me. I'm going to jump in right behind Dwayne and, uh, tag team off of that. Um, I did not grow up hunting. Actually, uh, my father didn't hunt. I didn't have very many hunters in the family. It was something that I uh, became interested in though at a very young age, and uh, grew up bow hunting because it was the easiest way. And the uh, growing up outside Metro Atlanta, um, a lot of counties are only open to bow hunting. So you know, got a compound bow, all in with the leafy wear suits. Eventually, got into my current job. Um, ironically, stopped hunting for about 10 years in part because I was dealing with uh, a lot of poachers and just a lot of uh, illegal hunting activity. And it turned me off to it. And then about 2009 or so, a game warden uh, friend called me and said, Hey, do you want to go hunting?" And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I do. Um, and and so he kind of brought me back out of the, out of the funk and I hunted for a few years with uh, my 30 out six and, you know, out of tree stands and using, you know, scent killer and lures and, uh, you know, all kinds of modern clothing. I have a, you know, pretty, uh, uh, well-established set of clothing and equipment from work that I eventually started, started using and wearing, um, got into some night vision predator hunting, stuff like that, uh, to, for training for work. And then eventually I just kind of decided that, um, I want to make this harder and my love of history came, you know, sort of back. Um, Fred can attest to this. There's several years ago uh, I've known Fred and several of you guys from light fighter um, over the years. And so I just started hitting up Fred constantly and uh, I put together um, the clothing, uh, bought my first flint lock, wound up building another myself and trying to put together, Together everything i could as carefully documented as i could i wanted to get it exact i wanted to be this i wanted this to be a lot like experimental archaeology uh if i could make it so and then eventually uh you know back into the traditional longbow stuff as well and the whole why behind it was i just wanted to make it harder on myself i mean i have publix and kroger and grocery stores and things that i can go to and, uh, I wanted to, uh, as, as Thoreau, I'm going to bastardize this quote, but, you know, if it's meant to be hard, I want it to be the hardest that I can make it because when I, when I'm successful and, and when I can be consistently successful,
3: I'll know that, uh, that I've made it. Well, I'll jump in there and piggyback off of Moose. Um, probably what got
5: me into both of them is actually my father. Like I said, he, he bought me a recurve when I was eight. Um, I grew up listening to him tell me about him and his uncle Jim hunting these big monster muleys and in, in Southern Utah with the recurves. And it just, it was something that we did. Um, I didn't actually start hunting with a bow until uh, like I said about six, 16. So I've been hunting deer for, I don't know, two or three years. I can't remember what Utah's laws were. And, uh, hunted bows with, with bows for a while. And then it kind of slacked off a little bit as I really got hot and heavy in the army. And then, um, I started picking it up probably about five years before I retired because I realized it was a good form of therapy. Um, I call it string therapy. Uh, cause there, you don't have to, you can't think about anything else while you're doing it. And I really, really got sunk back into it. Um, learned how to be a bow tech because I'd usually break my own wheel bows and have to take them into somebody else to have them fixed them. And I got tired of paying someone to fix them I want to learn how to do it myself. So I've pretty much got my own shop in my, in my, in my garage. Um, but then with the traditional stuff, I wanted to connect back to my youth, you know, all those years chasing jackrabbits around with a little 20 pound, 25 pound recurve. And, um, spent probably about a year and a half the last year and a half hot and heavy into it was actually able to kill um an antelope last summer with my recurve which which was my main goal and um that made the entire fall and um i think it'll be really hard to put down the the recurve after after this I'm, i'm already looking forward to this fall uh, with some other plans and then as far as the muzzleloader stuff again it goes back to my father he drew he drug me to weekly rendezvous shoots um all that stuff um i got out of it it was always a form of it was always something to hunt with as a kid because utah has separate um uh, when i was living there utah has separate muzzleloader rifle and and archery season so it was, it was a way to extend the fall and 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 i liked it And I liked it just as much as, as Bo, because it forced me to get close. It forced me to use that field craft and, you know, sneak and peek and play the wind even more and, um, really try to get, you know, get in that red zone. Um, but then it was probably about 2005 after my first deployment, I ran into a couple of friends and they were involved in this group called the American long rifle association. Um, Fred and Moose may have heard of them. Um, and that's when I really got kind of hot and heavy into uh, flintlocks. And it was another way for me to focus my mind and work on something and not think about other, other things. And I really enjoyed working on flintlocks. and I love making those stupid things um, as aggravating as they can be. Um, haven't killed anything with with the flintlock yet, but that that's going to happen. I've got some cap locks that have a number of no, a number of notches on them, but to me, black powder's black powder. The smell of that sulfur smell, and you know, messing whether you're messing with a conical or or a patch round ball, and your shorter distances, there's there's something very, um, very historical about it. And and again, it it does take me back to my youth, and it. And the biggest thing you know it forces me to hunt close which i really really like and that's translated into taking um big game hunters where you know the the guy that i work for he doesn't like our clients shooting farther than 300 yards totally get that i like to try to get them closer and i've had a number of guys kill mule deer with their modern rifles within 100 yards you know snuck in got them perfect the wind was perfect Made a great shot, and they're like, "Wow, I didn't know you could kill her that that you know these these things that that close." Boy, you
3: haven't learned nothing yet. <laughs> but that's that's why I like the two. I guess you know I I can't really say anything
6: that nobody else hasn't already said, but I'll just um, 2009 uh, in Afghanistan, I just decided I've had enough with this modern and I need a separation of work and, and hobby, so to speak. And, uh, so all the modern stuff, well, I still keep a Mark 18 under the bed, but, uh, all the modern stuff stays in the closet. And now, uh, everything is traditional archery and, and muzzleloader. And it is, it's, it's getting close, um, and uh, having a familiarity with uh, with your prey. And I uh, I shoot turkeys in my front yard and deer in my backyard. Um, that's really more just harvesting, but then I uh, I will uh, I will go out uh, a field more than more than just where I live. And uh and got one deer that's just bedevilling me. We've been bumping into each other for two
3: years now. And uh, hopefully one day I'll get to take the shot. I guess I'm uh, suppose I'm just a lot like Fred. I, I, I can't see anything really new than what
1: everybody's already said. I, um, I started shooting a little what was that little bear bow you guys the little the little kids bow that was the first bow i ever got the little white one y'all remember that little bow that was the first bow i got it was a bear cub there it is the bear cub that's it that was my first bow um i i think my dad got me hunting with compound just so we could have more time in the woods hunting and then when i started doing a lot more on my own that's when i started shooting recurves i just found a an affinity for it. I, there was just something about shooting, I guess, traditional and instinctual. I read uh, Asbel's book and was fascinated by his methodology of shooting traditional and instinctive shooting, and I fell in love with it. The black powder loading thing was a family thing. My dad and all his brothers were big into the National Loading Rifle Association. One of them shot bench guns, one of them shot trap, one of them shot rifle, and And one of them built knives, one of them built guns, one of them built leather goods. And and I just grew up in that kind of environment. So that's kind of where I am now as an adult. I built my first Flinter two years ago out of a kit gun. Uh, Up until that point, I was shooting, you know, a traditions, 50 cal, that because I could beat around with it and didn't feel too bad about beating it up at all. But other than that, I was shooting family guns. Um, For those that know who Herschel House is, my dad has a house gun. I've killed some deer with that rifle. Uh, My dad's killed numerous deer with that rifle. My uncle's built rifles. I've killed deer and squirrels with those rifles. Um, And now I'm trying to, my first, the first, the first black powder firearm I built was a smoothie. And I wanted to be able to, as I said last in the last one, I wanted to be able to hunt with shot as well as ball. So I could go turkey hunting, bird hunting, squirrel hunting, deer hunting, do whatever I wanted to with one rifle because I'm cheap like that. (laughs)
0: so a common thing you guys have brought up is the overall distance such short such it's much shorter of a distance what are some of the considerations with that with how you're set up with your movement yes um
6: wind movement um i'm i'm a ground hunter uh just, uh, Dad fell out of a tree, and we almost lost him when I was young, and so I've never gotten and never been comfortable as a tree stand hunter, and so, um, yes, and so that deer, that that one deer that uh, a couple of weeks ago he was 48 yards from me with a sapling covering his lungs, and so we just sat there and did good, bad, and the ugly eyes at each other till, uh, and the way, and he was so smart, the way that he turned and ran, I didn't have a shot even when he, uh, it was like he pivoted on his back legs and was gone. And so, and days like that are almost better than, than even just taking a shot and, and, you know, taking game it's, uh, cause that's just exciting.
3: (laughs)
2: I want to, uh, yeah, uh, I had a hunt on, uh, Saturday, actually. Um, so now you talk about distance, I, I like to talk about lighting, uh, when it comes to distance as well. Uh, I am also a ground hunter. I don't like tree stands. Uh, never really cared for them that much. Not a fan of heights to begin with. And, uh, I fall asleep a lot in the woods if it's early in the morning. So, uh, falling asleep and heights aren't, aren't uh, a good combo, But, um, you know, we talk about in modern firearms, uh, not violating one of the four cardinal rules of firearm safety. And and one of the things that I've seen and noticed even in myself early on with black powder weapons, people have a tendency to violate some of those rules from time to time. And I don't know if it's a thought process that, you know, Hey, this isn't like a modern gun or something like that. And specifically what I'm talking about is, you know, when you're in close proximity to game. Um, you're on the ground, maybe you have a, a decent ground blind set up. Maybe not. Uh, maybe it's a hasty encounter and now you've got to reach up and cock this, uh, this hammer back, right? Uh, it's probably on half cock, which is a safety on, on muzzle loaders. And now you got to get it back to full cock and maybe your muzzle loader has a set trigger. Mine do not. Um, and so you got to get all that stuff calculated and, and you know, uh, if you're a fan of the Meat Eater show, I think last season he had a Flintlock episode in Pennsylvania. Um, like Dwayne was talking about earlier with an extended season in Pennsylvania. And uh he's not is not used to a muzzle loader and he's got the trigger set and he's got the hammer cocked. So as he brings the gun up, it goes off prematurely. And uh, so I am not a big fan of having the hammer cocked while I'm sitting there. Uh, hunting And so part of the challenge is even just being able to get the hammer back to full cock. Now, the hunt that I referred to on Saturday, uh, waited all afternoon, uh, about four hours uh, on the ground. Finally, some deer showed up. Lighting conditions are getting worse. And so that brass uh, front sight is getting harder to see but I can still see it. I can still line it up with the rear side notch. I can still uh, adjust my holds for the distance that I estimated it to be at. Um, And I get everything lined up, pull the trigger. The Flint hits the frizzin, which is the steel uh, upright piece um, that creates the spark in the pan or creates the spark that hits the powder in the pan. And uh, my ultra reliable uh, 54 caliber Virginia rifle just clicks. no, activity whatsoever in the pan no flash no no no, it's not even a hang fire man it's like the the flint doesn't even produce any sparks and of course at that point every deer in the field looks at me so i've effectively just sat in the woods for about four and a half hours uh to watch all the deer look at me laugh and run away but kind of like what fred was saying though those to me have become more of the uh cherished hunting experiences because I learn more from those those failures. Uh just wish there were few of them sometimes. We would nickname
6: you Clatch except we've all had one. <laughs> so
5: <laughs> with the distance thing, um so um so I'm a Western hunter. I've sat in a tree stand total uh one week. It was this year in Kansas. I don't know if I will ever do that again, um, <laughs> 70 hours over five days. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that that's rough for me. You know, I, I can sit on a, I can sit on a ridge and glass for four or five hours straight and be cool, but sitting in a tree stand and yeah, that that's, that's rough. But learning how to, growing up, learning how to hunt mule deer, you have to watch the wind and you have to watch those thermals and all that stuff. And that really, really intrigued me. Um, especially when I really started concentrating on mature mule deer. Um, they're just, from what I've seen around here with, with the mature whitetail, they hit that four and a half year old and a switch gets flipped and they're like a completely different animal. And so you've got to have, I mean, you've got to watch all that stuff and get close and get within their comfort zone. And it is, it is a challenge and it's a challenge that I really, really love to do. And starting to bow hunt antelope since I've been here. That's an entirely different. <laughs> um, that's, that is one, one of the funnest things I think you can do with your clothes on. I, and you, I mean, I mean, I mean, multiple stocks in a day, sometimes on the same buck and you're trying to get, you know, not within 40 yards of them. You're trying to get within a hundred yards of them. And it is it is so challenging and so addicting and so much fun it keeps me coming back for more
3: abuse i'll talk about the uh
2: one of the things that i've noticed uh especially with picking up muscle loaders more and even uh re- or longbow with no sights on it right so you know if if you struggle at all with uh, iron sights on a modern rifle, or you know, there's still people out there that struggle with red dot sights on rifles and and uh, variable powered optics and all, um, <laughs> a lot of people still still deal with the flinches, right? So you pick up a flintlock, and uh, whatever flinches you have on a modern gun are going to be exacerbated times a thousand with that, uh, two-part explosion going off right by your eyes. And so one of the byproducts that I noticed over time is, is as I've gotten more comfortable with the Flintlock, um, going back to modern, uh, you know, like work rifles and stuff like that. Um, there's, it's, there's no fanfare and, and it, it was a roundabout way of fixing the flinches of course they still come back from time to time like everybody but um, I have a much better broader understanding of firearms uh use and firearms shooting and
3: and uh super grateful for that byproduct one hundred percent yes
1: i would i would uh I, I'm a black powder shooting coach for our four h here in my little hometown and and the reason i went black powder is i felt like that that helped teach the kids exactly what you just mentioned moose i mean it's just one of the things where kids begin to understand a lot more even from a visual perspective what's going on inside a rifle barrel when they see this this pan flash and everything that goes along with shooting a flintlock uh, for the kiddos which you know you don't have to do that for 4-h i mean they are shooting for competition and but 4-H is really focused on more, say, fun than anything, and uh, I have found this has been a great way to introduce people to firearms because it's exciting. It makes a big boom. It has a flash. It's kind of exciting, and uh, and then they can go down the bench, down you know, at the gun range and shoot 22 pistols too. You know, I mean, it's kind of a beautiful thing with 4-H. But I, I love it for the same reason, especially with kids, even.
4: When it takes, uh, you know, five to six times longer to load the rifle than it does to shoot the rifle, you tend to be a little more careful with where you put it. That's definitely.
3: Yeah.
4: I love watching the smiles
5: on people's faces when they've never fired a muzzleloader, let alone a flintlock when they shoot it the first time. You know they watch you load it, and you're doing all this stuff, and they're thinking, "Oh, this is like some last Mohican shit or something like like that." And then they touch it off, and that flash goes across your face, and the big plume of smoke, and the smell, and they turn around, and they've got that that look like, oh, "What was that?" And you're like, "Yeah," and that's
1: one of the reasons why we do it.
6: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know why, but I I, I get a lot of fun out shooting black powder deer hunting and you know, making the shot and then having to duck down and look and see, you know, make sure your shot where
4: it went, where it was supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) There's something
1: something about that, that I absolutely love. I mean, I, I do everything I can to make a solid shot and I feel pretty comfortable. I wouldn't take one if I didn't have one, but at the same time, you know, you want to get eyes on. And if you just stand there holding the rifle, you can't, you've got to move around that big ball of smoke out in front of you, which is, which is a lot of fun. And God forbid, if there's any moisture in the air,
2: then it's like being in some (laughs) seventies opium den right after you take the shot, man.
4: I like it. It Just, you have, it forces you to learn more about animal behavior in general and what cues that you can take from what they're doing with how agitated they are, how alert they are. Uh, The the challenge of drawing a bow from 20 feet up in a tree at an animal that's at 30 or 40 yards versus the challenge of drawing a bow at either a much lower stand or on the ground uh from 20 yards is significant and uh you wouldn't think that you could uh, that a whitetail could hear a uh, wooden shaft being drawn across uh you know a hair rest on a, on a longbow but uh no what the <laughs> heck they do <laughs> yeah <laughs> So it's it's all about learning when you can take those opportunities, what what they have to be doing, and I mean that takes. A, there's a lot of just busted draws or busted cocking when it comes to a flintlock that uh, when you just have to you have to figure out a lot more about what that animal's thinking and doing um, to figure out when your opportunities are. That's that 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 animal behavior
5: aspect of it is huge, and I don't think people that hunt with a center fire most of the time really understand how much that plays into it. And, um, it was amplified even more to me this summer hunting with the recurve. You know, I had to be a heck of a lot more patient than, than I could with a compound. And I saw stuff that, you know, in the 30 some odd years I've been hunting that I've never seen before, just because it forced me to wait an extra three hours. I'm like, I have never seen that animal do that before. Well, I'm going to file that away for next time.
0: So, with this in mind, as far as approaching, scaring, preparing your weapons, and all that, what have been your biggest takeaways or your best lessons to pass on? And this is for everyone. Keep your hatchet scoured.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, nice and the biggest thing is, is
4: that shot opportunities, because of the, the 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 proximity and all those things, and how hard it is to actually get the opportunity, you have to practice. I mean, religiously, uh, in order to be good enough to make to to not screw it all away when the moment of truth comes. So, I mean, instinctive archery is is no joke. When I'm hunting, in, you know, with a longbow, every day I'm shooting arrows. Every single day, I'm out there after work or in the morning or whatever. Because otherwise you're just you're gonna shank it into the off into the into the rough and, and not even come close <laughs> to it. Well, worse yet, wound one, right? So and same thing with the flintlock. Um as you mentioned the, the flinchies are no joke when you have a controlled explosion six inches from your face. It'll do wonders for your follow-through. If you can shoot a flintlock. you can shoot anything.
2: I feel like I learned a lot more about what's truly important. Um, you know, for years I worried about if- about camouflage and controlling every ounce of scent that my body might emit, um, and falling for all of the, the different products that are out there. Um, and and then eventually when I stripped all that stuff away, I started to learn more, um, you know, Fred alluded earlier to sit still and read the wind. Um, and, and like, once you read the wind, you learn where to look, right? So Craig, we talked about, we've talked about tracking and stuff before you find tracks where you would expect expect a lot of times where animals or people move and so you you become a better tracker by learning where to look well i think you become a better hunter by learning where and when to look in that area um and and you do that obviously by reading the wind that turkey hunting with the muzzleloader for the first uh one of the first times ever you know i had blue wool leggings on uh, basically a white linen hunting shirt uh, there was not a stitch of camouflage on me at all. I had a wingbone turkey call that I made from a Jake that I'd killed the year before, um, and uh, it was all sitting still and and learning the animal behavior. So I, I knew when to bring the gun up as as the, as the turkey got closer, and I was less concerned about hiding from it. I was more concerned about the actual skills, the the active skills, than the passive. And uh, somebody mentioned a few minutes ago, the uh, keep your, keep your uh, hatchet scoured. Uh, <laughs> I, I do have to say that this year uh, I bear hunted with my muzzleloader and black bears. So not grizzlies and stuff for you folks out West. But um, I, my only like secondary was my tomahawk and and hear me out on this, right? <laughs> I figured like, all right, let's say the shot didn't go as planned and the bear somehow, I don't know why a black bear would attack, but they, they do from time to time my logic was, all right, this black bear attacks, like I might wind up in the hospital, but if I killed this thing with a tomahawk, like it would probably be worth like, the scars <laughs> in the bill. Like I'd be the first dude in here in a long time that could make.
6: It might be why I sometimes carry a Patterson revolver to town. <laughs> <laughs> as my concealed carry. <laughs>
2: Fred and his Lamat.
6: Yeah. Oh no, I don't want a modern Lamat. I'm I'm going full 1836 Patterson.
3: <laughs> hmm.
6: And but Craig, you mentioned Fred Asbell um, earlier, and uh, great man. Love his books. He was uh, he had my father do a lot of his taxidermy over the years but he just passed away uh, at the beginning of this week. And, uh, but, um, his books on how to, because it's all about stalking, uh, they, I mean, I think everybody should read them just about how, you know, even if it's just how to walk to your tree stand. (laughs) Yeah. uh,
1: I think a common theme that we keep talking about and Fred just brought up regarding Mr. Asbel is, it's just, I think these, these choice of tools, bows and black powder, you've, in my estimation, forgive me if I'm wrong, you, you just got to be a better woodsman to be able to utilize those effectively than your typical grab a rifle, go out a week before season, shoot a deer 400 yards or whatever. I mean, a lot of people yeah. can do that, but your, your typical person or your new person to the, to hunting, to get within range for a recurve shot, that's not happening for your typical person. And one of you guys mentioned it too. I, I, I like getting busted. You all, I mean, I like, I mean, I, wanna, I learned I so like... much from getting busted. <laughs> Absolutely. There's and I, I told this story last time, but that Turkey that got me this season with my flinter. And he comes he comes rolling up there right where I knew I was going to call him and right where I knew I was going to shoot him and he had hens all the way around him and I didn't get him was just like, yeah that dude I you know respect baby I mean I was all about this turkey about how he fooled me and got me good and and there's just something about that even though I did everything right I you know he beat me he beat me that day and, I, and that's that's yeah. good stuff.
6: And that's think yeah that that that's a real a real experience that you know a deer or anything four hundred yards away that all of a sudden gets smacked. Um, just there's no, and I said this earlier. There's no personal connection between you and your prey.
1: Right, I agree, Fred, a hundred percent. I'd say
2: for anybody that winds up uh, anybody that's listening now or or winds up listening. Uh, like- You know, if this is something that you're interested in, the only thing I would add is sort of the common thing that I think we're all talking about is as you get into this hobby, expect frustration, right? And embrace the frustration because it's part of the learning process. I mean, when I first tried to cite in my first Flintlock and I'm like on the internet, on my phone like I got to do what? I got to file this front sight down? Like what do you mean I got to file? What I got to get a drift punch and you know punch <laughs> this thing over? Like I just spent a ton of money on this thing. How is this a thing, right? And then and then like I have to figure out how many grains of of FFg black powder this gun likes. Come on, man. Where's my Hodge gun at? It's like give me my Hodge gun, man. This thing's easy. <laughs> um <laughs> and uh I had to really come to terms with uh the fact that I could not spend money to buy my way out of the learning process. And, um, it was very, very Yeah. It was probably the, the, the biggest lesson I had and it's translated well to so many different things.
0: I'm out then.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and to piggyback the, uh, I think that this traditional archery and black powder, it truly requires a one-on-one mentorship, and many of us we got it from our fathers. Um, but for people, you know, bringing new people in, um, and it's it's that yeah one-on-one at the range, um, whether whether it's archery or black powder. Because the inter- internet isn't going to be able to tell you why you're throwing all your arrows to the left when they're not there seeing you
3: shoot. And uh, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's exactly why I
1: became a 4 H coach. I mean, I don't think anybody's mentioned it yet, and maybe I've missed it, but but another reason is just to keep history alive, man. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm, you know, I know that at a typical four, eight shoot, the kids are going to have fun shooting their 22 rifles and shooting, uh, repeating 22, uh, sidearm. That's a lot of fun too. I mean, I enjoy that as well. Right. But if we're not doing something with this next generation, then these things are going to die out. I mean, they're just going to be museum relics. And for us to be able to help or mentor, uh, our own children or other people's children or a buddy, that's getting into hunting and we take them black powder shooting. I mean, we're, we're keeping history alive too. I, and I think that's important. I yes, mean, we could yeah. all choose a more modern firearm. There'd be a whole lot easier to use, but daggone, there's just something about that challenge and that, that makes, makes it worthwhile. I have, uh,
4: go ahead, Anthony. No, go ahead. I've talked enough. Now the historical aspect is, is another big, huge draw for me. In, in almost every kind of every one of these pursuits and going back and like this just grab these things, but put a ton of time into this, the whole buff runner era was a big thing for me. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, a muzzle loader per se, but, you know, this is a black powder cartridge with a paper patch bullet, you know, very similar to almost exactly the way it was done, you know, back in the day with you know the same kind of alloys and it's just tin and lead and the whole deal. And just that, Part of history, as well as with the the longbows and 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 the flintlocks, and just appreciating how things were in that period, and how things had to be done because they were different. You know, figuring out how to, you know, and I try to be close range with these things too, but you know, figuring out how those guys use barrel sights at five hundred yards on on animals out there and stuff like that. And you know, uh, a guy named Bill Bagwell was a fantastic mentor to me in uh, in all things sharp and sharps and, and taking bison and stuff like that. So. Um, the mentorship thing is also really
3: important with keeping that history alive. Well, I, um, Mm -hmm. go ahead.
2: Well, in in case we were going to move off of that topic, I I was just going to add that for, you know, again, for those who are interested, uh, potentially interested, I decided that each of my three kids, uh, would get a Flintlock muzzleloader and an AR-15, uh, from me, So part of, you know, part of my sort of underlying motivation has been to select guns that I think they would like as they've gotten older and then uh, to go and and harvest a a deer with each of those guns. And then I actually do some brain tanning. Um, So I take the hides from the deer that I harvest with that gun, brain tan the hide and make a shooting pouch. And so each of my kids will get a flintlock, a shooting pouch made from a deer that that flintlock killed in a powder horn along with a, uh, with an AR. And it just seems to be something uniquely American that I could pass down. And hopefully between one of those two things, they'll, they'll keep it going.
3: Parenting done right. (laughs) So this
6: bow here, it's, it's not from me. Dad made it for my daughter. Um, it's kind of an ishy style bow, but I did at least trap the beaver that the tail was used to make the handle. But uh, but yeah, so
2: yeah, we're we're all on the same sheet of music there, it would seem. That's awesome. I also want to add that I uh, will never try to make my own bow again. I tried it one time and uh, got so frustrated. I said, "Yeah, I will buy my way out of this one for sure." <laughs>
4: Yeah, I'll make arrows, but I'll leave the bows uh, <laughs> for somebody else.
6: Uh, dad and I are sitting down and uh, making me a dozen arrows. Uh, we're, you know, hand cutting the knocks, um, everything, because uh, I'm. Uh, so dad is a uh, or what he's he's retired, but he was a world champion taxidermist. Um, and. Uh, we. I spent a lot of time skinning that other people might've spent hunting growing up. Um, but so I'm finally now, uh, I'm taking my first foreign hunt, um, going to Canada to hunt black bear this fall with, uh, with a bow he made and arrows we made her together.
2: So that, uh, I'm really going to talk about that. we going to talk about that bear hide, what you're going to do with it. there?
3: Fred you got a you got
2: a market here on this call <laughs> <laughs> well I mean
6: you know well you've seen the pictures of me from you know my birth announcement where I'm on a bearskin rug um, I'm guessing that's probably uh, what'll end up happening I don't think I'm gonna make it into grenadier hats if that's what you were
2: talking about <laughs> <laughs> I've got this uh, this crazy look lip- history program uh, thought out or I'm going to try to replicate uh, Lewis Wetzel's uh, account when he was 12 of looking out across the uh, the cornfield from his cabin and seeing a, his family seeing a black bear and Wetzel saying, I don't think that's a black bear. I think that's an Indian uh, wearing a mm-hmm. black bear skin. I thought, all right, I'm, I need a black bear skin so I can
3: try to <laughs> replicate what that looked like. I don't Eight, know why. I guess century
2: ghillie suit. <laughs>
3: So for
5: you guys with your oh, go ahead. No, I just say so. So I got a question for everybody. Did you guys grow up with whether it was archery or muzzleloader with either an author or a figurehead that you were just intrigued with and followed, you know, uh, a muzzleloading side? Um, uh, what's the name that comes to mind? Um, Mark Baker, great author. Um, has done a lot of what they call you know experimental ar- ar- archaeology you can debate whether it's 100% accurate or not um, just, he, he's an example uh, Fred Bear you know watching his old yes. old movies um, my personal guy that I grew up with was Chuck Adams you know right. so i, I just wonder, wonder if if you guys had had, had your own personal you know either either author or figurehead that, that that you kind of followed or wanted to emulate or idolized or however or however you want to say it
1: yeah yes yeah I, I, when i read, when i read mr Asbill's book i absolutely fell in love with that way of thinking that way of being a woodsman that way of being a bow shooter uh, i just fell in love with it so I, I highly looked up to him and his way of doing that thing that that sort of thing uh although i grew up in a family that did a lot of black powder my dad and my uncles didn't do a whole lot of instinctive shooting so that was something i picked up on my own and so reading his books and then shooting with other instinctive shooters helped me considerably but it was definitely his writing that got me hooked on that as far as black powder um you know mark baker herschel house were friends of my family and my uncles so i was in the shop with herschel house and i was you know at at the house when Mark Baker came by the house. So that was one of them things that, you know, these guys that are legends, my my dad or his brothers knew these guys, and so I was around the shop with these guys, and it was pretty – It's it, I think it's part of the reason I'm kind of wanting to keep it alive too. I mean, because I can see that there's not a whole lot of folks with the legendary status like those guys were back then. And uh, that doesn't mean there's not some great makers. There's some great rifle makers out there now, alive, young guys too, real young guys that are getting into it. And it's just, it doesn't seem, and maybe I'm out of that circle of people. I don't know. Fred could answer that for me, probably, or maybe Moose, but it just doesn't seem the popularity is there anymore. You know, we had our, we have a rendezvous and for my organization, and we set up a teepee this year, just try to keep that alive a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, just you know, we could have set up a big tent and everybody could have gotten a tent, Um, but we, you know, we set up a teepee. I got a teepee from my uncle, and we set it up, and people got to stay in a teepee. That had never been in a teepee before, even though it's not historically accurate to this part of the world. It's still, yeah. you know, just trying to retain history. Uh, I think that's. But yeah, I'm I'm getting off subject now. But yeah, the world thought, needs another
4: Jeremiah Johnson movie. Oh, dude.
1: Hey, yeah. hurt me as a kid. <laughs> I'll step off. Right. But I've got a, I've got a question about that later. I want to ask you all, but I'll, I'll step off. Cause all right. Justin's got a great question here.
2: Well, Dwayne, Dwayne, you are, you're the epic man of the podcast. Cause I was about to say Robert Redford and Jeremiah Johnson. Like I didn't have any close, you know, personal friends that were involved in this. And uh, I remember watching Jeremiah Johnson as a young kid. And then ironically, a few years ago, Robert Redford came by uh, work and he was doing some film scouting. And so uh, I, I had to go down and meet him. And he, uh, he said, Hey, I'm going to ride with you. And I was like, okay. So he opened up my patrol car passenger door, moved all my, my stuff off the seat, put it in the back seat himself and plopped himself down in my patrol car and we spent about the next uh, two or three hours together, and uh, I told him the only thing I wanted to talk about was the only movie he did that was worth a damn, and it was Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> you got to. Oh,
5: I love that movie, and there's so many scenes that are the same area there in Utah, just different angles of it. And I've skied right at the base of so many of them. i was like, mm. God, this is you know. Sometimes I just watch <laughs> that movie just so I can see the the scenery in it. Mm
6: it's a good
4: rifle and a bear. what killed me
6: yeah (laughs) well so i mean i growing up in southern indiana um you know friendship um and so all of those uh you know all the the greats uh that were still around from you know the 70s you know up to now um you know they were all uh mentors of mine um And, you know, Fred Asbell, the Wenzel brothers, uh, they on on the traditional archery side, they all came to dad's shop and uh, so got to meet them, shoot with them, get that real uh, hands on, you know, correction, because sometimes, you know, we don't like to listen to our dad. But, you know, if your if your uncle tells you to do it, you'll you'll do it. (laughs) That uh, so those were all of my mentors. And uh, and I mean, I I remember Mark Baker. uh, We were in a reenactment group together uh, when he was an undergrad. (laughs) So that. uh, When uh, it was uh, it was kind of cool. Somebody you actually knew start to see his articles in muzzleloader and all that. So uh,
4: Byron Ferguson watching the uh, trick shots on the shows was always a, a, a thing for me too. And so I eventually had a conversation with Byron, and I, my main hunting longbow is uh, is
3: one that he makes now, is Takedown Hunter model two piece. So for people listening who might start to think maybe this is something I need to get
0: into, where do you suggest, number one, where's a good source of information for this information, but also everyone loves buying stuff, where do you go for for that first black powder or what, what should be ideally that first black powder rifle or that
3: first bow? Well, also, I don't but, know. Oh, go, go ahead.
6: ahead. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was going to say subscribe to all. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I was going to say subscribe to muzzleloader magazine um, and uh, traditional bow hunter. Um, yes, there there are web presences for all of this, but the simple act of subscribing to a magazine is going to start the mindset getting you back into this we'll is start true with a 19 we'll start with a 1970s mindset you know yes muzzle blast yes join the nmlra which is the muzzle loading version of uh the nra come to friendship for the uh the championship shoots and uh and I say, it, yes, it's a national championship shoot, but you can walk up and they have special areas just for people who've never shot before, that somebody will take you through and allow you to shoot, and if you like it, you know, then you can drag a credit card through the sheep sheds and walk out the other side of Mountain Man.
3: Um <laughs> Well, we well, look like one yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> i uh i'll say with archery too uh traditional longbow archery for me um you know i wanted to start off with a, a bow i could hunt with right so 50 uh, 52 pounds at 23 inches, I have a very short draw weight on that bow because I wanted it to be as authentic as possible in terms of uh, native, uh, southeastern native shooting styles. And um, so so I went as authentic as I could and didn't take into account the learning process. And uh, I, so my recommendation there is start with a lower draw weight um, something where you can build up your muscles, build up your fingers, and and get uh, more repetitions in with shooting. Make it fun and comfortable, and then build yourself up to something something more. Uh, on muzzle loaders. I, I will say, take the plunge. Right, if you're not worried about ultra authenticity, you know you can get in to to like the Pedersoli flintlocks or something like that for a fairly low cost, and you'll get. You know, you'll have a fun time, a fun experience. Um, the inline stuff I'm just not into. I, I really feel like those are not muzzle loaders. That's my personal no. opinion. No. Um, and you know, they they sure. Not
3: when there's a weighters. nine
6: volt battery and a pistol grip that sets it off.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. And and so <laughs> Like if you feel like that's, if if you feel like, you know, if you follow the advertisements and that becomes your, your version of the experience, Hey, good on you. I'm not, I'm not going to judge you for it, but just know there's a whole lot more out there
5: with the archery stuff. Um, if you have a local club, especially if they have a subset of guys that shoot longbows and recurves, um, they're really willing to, um, share information with you. Um, I, I talked to a ton of guys when I tried to get back into, uh, uh, the recurve side, you know, the non-training wheel side of it. Um, and, um, and th- that alone, j- just picking their brain and, and talking things and stuff. Um, was it, was it, was it was a big help. Um, for someone that is looking at going from a compound to a traditional bow, having just done this and 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 I'm not saying this bragging, you know, I've been shooting seventy pounds for a really, really long time. I checked my ego and I started with a thirty five pound bow, yeah, and it took me a solid I would say six months consciously working on form and trying to get everything right before I even moved up to a forty pound set of limbs. And then eventually just progressed up and because it is a whole different game. Yes. Um, and I have a human, I, I have an, a lot of respect for guys that, that stick with that and have never pulled back the training wheels and continue to do that. And some of these guys are shooting 60, 65 pound longbows. My shoulders can't handle that. Mm. Um,
2: um, but, <laughs> but,
5: <laughs> but, but, if, but but if you're a compound guy that's looking to go on on to to what i call the traditional side check your eagle at the door and start low there's nothing wrong with that plus it gives you a low poundage bow that is really really fun to shoot especially when you go to like your local 3d shoot i mean it, yeah. it's it's a riot
4: yeah absolutely and uh, low poundage or and, and getting a bow that has interchangeable limbs starting off with a recurve and nothing it doesn't have to be any expensive like a samic sage with some set of low poundage limbs that you can work up or you know if you want to start with one of the three rivers risers and, and do their limbs they're, they're not too crazy if you go with the lower end limbs that aren't carbon or anything or foam um, those are great ways start low form first then figure it out um, because you will never figure it out. Right. Your form will be trash for your entire life. If you yank a 60 pound bow off the wall and start trying to yank arrows um, and then muzzle loader stuff. Um, the trick on that is, is there's a, especially when you get into Flint locks, there's a lot of guns out there that have, you know, kind of sketchy locks. Right. And that's the most frustrating thing in the world to deal with. You know, the touch hole not drilled right at the right height. The frizzing not hard enough. The lock geometry is bad. Uh, and you'll get a lot of clatches, right, you, and, or or just, you know, flashing the pan the whole deal, and and that's nothing but an exercise in frustration. Um, if you can find one of the old Thompson Center Hawkins or Renegades, those guns, even though they aren't entirely historically accurate with lock shape and, and things like that, they usually go bang, uh, and those are good. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the Lyman guns are pretty good, um, are pretty decent, but... You know, the difference between the entry level stuff and, you know, a $3,000 custom or a gun that you build from like a Jim Chambers kit, uh, when you're talking, you know, LNR or Siler's or any of the really good locks is, is the same difference in, you know, the Savage, you know, Axis, which is a perfectly fine and utilitarian tool or a, you know, $5,000, you know, custom bolt gun. The, the difference is, is, is similar, right? Yeah. And, and reliability is is a, is a big thing with that flintlock right so
5: du- duane while we're talking about locks in case anybody doesn't know i did actually come prepared for once in my life Excellent. um so lyman great plains rifle what he's talking about the lock is this piece right here so plate hammer this happens to be a percussion uh the hammer comes down and hits the the nipple for a percussion cap. So when he's talking about a lock, this that you know for for your inline guys that don't know traditional stuff, this the this <laughs> this is what he's talking about um, on the flintlock side. So this is the one of the ones that I did. It's patterned it's patterned off of a J Dickert. So um, flintlock. Got your cock. Got your frizzin. Let me see if I can try to get the camera to zoom in on that a little bit. So when he's talking about a lock that that's what he's talking about.
4: Just simple things on some of the less expensive guns like the the frizzen and the and the pan don't meet and you're walking around all day with that uh, that flintlock uh, in the honeywoods and uh, then you go up to take your shot and all your powders Fell out. a big, big crack. Dribbled <laughs> out because your plate doesn't
2: fit your, uh, or the bottom plate of your frism doesn't fit your uh, pan. And know that no matter how bad your rifle is, it still won't be as bad as some of the ones historically. When uh, when you read accounts of, uh, of folks bending their rifle barrels to adjust for windage. Uh, you know that even your even your Cabela's special is uh, probably better than that one.
4: <laughs> if you've ever seen them like uh, rifling barrels at Friendship, I mean, they have the big old mm-hmm. barrel rifling machines right there where they got a single bit broach cutter with a big twisted wooden wheel, basically, that goes through a, a slot that turns the cutter as it goes through the rifle barrel. And that's that's how you're cutting rifling. You're cutting U-groove rifling in this thing. Every single one of those grooves is going to be a different depth. And, you know, it's just there's a degree of challenge uh, that's added there with a traditionally made rifle. They shoot amazingly well, but then you also have to conf- figure out, you know, the, the, the methodology for hardening steel. Not every rifle maker back in the day was as, as good at hardening steel, nor was the steel itself as good. They still imported locks from England for a very long time. Or, or parts of locks uh, back in the, in the colonial area, just because it was so difficult
3: to get good quality steel and be able to harden it appropriately to get that reliable, you know, shower of sparks into the pan. There, uh, there's a video on YouTube that uh, I'm pretty sure everybody on the panel has
2: seen, but for for folks kind of getting into it, it's from the 19, I think, early 1970s, and uh, it's from Colonial Williamsburg. Wallace Gussler, uh G U S S L E R, so you can find it on YouTube pretty easily. But it's a whole series on uh, on Colonial Williamsburg rifle uh, or gunsmiths making a a rifle, starting with just a flat bar of steel and and forging, forge welding the barrel, and then uh, forging all the different components, and carving the stock. Uh, it's fascinating, fascinating uh, documentary. Is,
5: isn't it actually called the gunsmith of Williamsburg or something very close to that? I think it is. Yeah. Between that one and the couple of videos that, uh, the, that Herschel did many, many years ago that I've got copies of, I, I can sit and watch those forever. And usually be t- before I do a new build, I'll sit down and I'll actually kind of watch them because I, I like watching those, those masters, how they manipulate some of that stuff and it, they make it look so damn easy and here i am you know like a you know monkey with a screwdriver trying to you know put 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 something in and they make such amazing works of art that work really really well it it, it it's really cool
3: <laughs> there are lots of places i should
2: say lots but there are several places around too uh colonial williamsburg being one uh place that i spend a whole lot of time at which is uh Wilderness Road State Park, which is in Western Virginia, just on the Virginia side of the Cumberland Gap, Martin Station. They have a functioning gun shop there. And every Sunday, uh, April through October, uh, they have one of their uh, living historian gunsmiths in there. He's got the rifling uh, uh, equipment that Dwayne was just talking about. And they built a couple of guns, you know, purpose-built
3: there. And there are a couple other famous builders, Mike Miller sim um, in england they're there a lot of times do working on guns so you kind of time hope oh, your connection came in and out i oh, sorry um how much did you get yes <laughs> or no actually
6: well we we got as far as uh as mike miller and uh simeon
2: and then you dropped ah, out well, okay all right well that was the end then so you got you got all of it uh okay. you know the internet's a powerful tool that can tell you all about places where you can go kind of see that thing being done even if it's not something you're interested in ever shooting or owning it's uh it's a fascinating glimpse into what uh what what gun building used to be like
0: So for those people that might be thinking, yeah, I might want to get into black powder. Are there things they need to be looking for right now that might be on shelves or might not be on shelves?
4: Percussion caps are crazy right now.
6: Yes. Powder is just, I mean, real
0: black powder. It's uh... so you're not making your own.
3: No. no i am yeah, surprised no
4: no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> totally done that but uh i don't regularly do it anymore <laughs> yeah
5: <laughs> no the the and i don't know the ins and outs of it but the requirements for a for a licensed dealer to store smokeless versus black powder is a royal pain in the butt uh they can't have an x number of pounds together they have to have a certain vault and, and it, it's so a lot of dealers of that type stuff have really really elected not to do it and if you can find real black powder then you're into this stuff buy as much as you can because there's a very good chance you won't be able to get it in, in the future or or for a long period of time now some of the some of the black powder substitutes work okay i haven't found one that works well enough in a flintlock no. and i think it's it, it's yeah. it's just the, it's just the nature of the beast um some of the some of the substitutes can work okay in your traditional cap locks like your hawkins and stuff like that um but when you when, when you're dealing with these i guess the words primitive muzzle loaders there's no substitute for real
4: black powder and there's 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 tons of different grades of black powder as well like i use either swiss or goex goex old einsdurd i found to be kind of the best especially when i'm doing cartridge stuff with accuracy requirements but um and you can find regular GoX out there there's some house brands graphs had a house brand for a while there's a bunch of different stuff out there and a, most of it is fine especially for you know your flintlock or or even percussion gun needs it's just maybe a little dirtier. You may have to clean it uh, a little more regularly, may not be quite as consistent. Um, but the biggest thing is if you do one can, you, you have the same thing with lot variants, right? There's there's some variance between lots with black powder, just like there is with smokeless. And it's, once again, if, you know, 100 yards and in, it may not be the most critical thing for you, but, you know, mm-hmm. for everything to shoot the same way, if you're going to buy one can, you know, buy three or four.
6: I belong to the NMLRA. I go to friendship. I buy powder in bulk for less than retail. Um, that's just one of the perks. And And I know, know I know guys that, you know, when you're in Utah, it's kind of hard to come to friendship or something like that, but that, uh, that avoids it, you know, and yeah, (laughs) stack it deep. (laughs) No, never 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 exceeding what the uh
4: what the personal limit is. Absolutely. <laughs> 50 pounds or so yeah, which, which I believe is the requirement for a magazine. 50 pounds is where it's where it's kind of at. The, the other thing is flints. And that's an, an extremely important one. And I'm a big fan yeah. of English English cut flints, or not cut flints, but nap flints, English nap yeah. flints. Uh if you you can buy cut like agate flints and stuff like that. If it looks That'd if it's smooth on every side, just ignore it. Uh, You want to, you know, Dixie Gunworks and uh, track of the wolf and a bunch of places like that have uh, English napped flints, the right size for your lock. And there's usually a, you know, they'll they'll help you out if you, if you don't know the right size for your lock. Um, But making sure that you do that and then either have a a good piece of, you know, a lot of the guns will come with a piece of leather to hold the flint. I like to hammer out a piece of sheet lead, uh, hammer a bullet into a a sheet of lead. And I think it holds the, uh, the flint better. uh, So it doesn't, you know get a, it's not as squishy uh so you get a firmer strike against the frizzen that's important too keep your keep your flint clean learn how to freshen your flint right there's videos on that too tap on the front edge so you keep a sharp edge on that flint that's pretty critical I think that's it
6: i'll say i i like to go to actual dealers that have flints and i pick through and i that's the best way. So you
4: don't get any bad, that's ones.
6: you know, and that's, but that's, and I, I realize I'm harping on this, but that's that old, old school way of doing things that, you know, there, there's not really an internet solution.
4: <laughs> I'll buy twice as many as I need. And I'll pick through and about half of those will become hunting fluents and the other half become range fluents.
2: Great. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I do exactly the same thing. Cause I tried buying them on the internet. Uh, I, I really like the French flints, uh, a lot wow. the, the flint from, from France. I've had just had some pretty good luck with it, but you know, uh, if you're into, uh, the whole bushcrafting thing and all, if you, you can take your extra flints and turn them into flints for flint and steel fire starting. So they never go to waste. Be careful.
1: And if you're into flint and happy, you make your own. Which is,
6: I've made one flint in my life. Um, although I did just decide to get back into flint napping, so.
2: <laughs> so that was I one that, that was the topic that I thought about bringing up earlier. Um, I can flint nap some, some spear points and arrow points. I, I have tried uh flint napping a flint for a flint lock and, and gave <laughs> up. Um, but what I was able to do is take a number of broken arrowheads and and turn those into working flints for a flintlock which is historically accurate uh there are some uh you know guys in the 1700s picking up broken arrowheads that they found and turning them into flints and that it's they're not nearly as reliable i should add but it was kind of fun to to get to make that happen before you know it you'll be casting your own balls too that's always
4: that's almost necessary that was my next question
1: yeah, yeah I did that as a kid, and I think about how me and my dad did that, and I'm kind of afraid that we did that back then, because I don't <laughs> think <laughs> I don't think we followed proper protocols. I, I'm sure we could have caused some serious problems for ourselves with the way we did it.
4: I used to cast bullets in an enclosed basement, so I mean, and yeah, I, that's what I'm saying, are, yeah, it just the safety precautions back in the '70s and '80s weren't the same, yeah.
6: <laughs> or just on the kitchen stove <laughs> yeah.
1: right
4: my lead levels are still really low so we got away with it but casting yeah. is therapeutic i enjoy that quite a bit i cast for almost everything everything from muzzle loaders to sharps to to you know pistols that i whether i shoot modern ammunition or um, black powder cartridge and, and the handguns and stuff like that and mm. casting is good um uh, pure lead have to be pure lead for a muzzle loader. if you try to shove a wheel weight ball down a uh, flintlock rifle barrel. You're going to break your short starter to begin with and then we'll never get it back out. So uh, yeah, pure lead is a hundred percent requirement. Certainly easier to start buying balls from once again, go to friendship track of the wolves another great Dixie gun works, another great place to, to get uh get balls. Hornady makes swaged round balls that are very consistent. You don't have a sprue on those, but that's um, what
6: I use for match shooting. And yeah, they're, they're five thirties are, just amazing.
3: <laughs> yeah, just Sierra, they're the
6: Sierra Match King of of the <laughs> flintlock world.
4: <laughs> Indeed, there's no way to, to get that sprue to be positioned, you know, 100 the same every time. And some I've seen guys file them off and then weigh the balls afterwards, but you still end up with a little bit of a flat spot. And mm-hmm. yeah, the Hornady Swage balls are, are pretty clutch. But I always hunt with uh, I always hunt with balls I cast myself. Same thing with you know the the, the sharps and stuff. I do bullets I cast myself and stuff like
2: that. I just think that's a part of it, right? Yeah, I'll have to try those Hornady ones. I hadn't seen those yet. I've been casting my own and then buying from track. Um, anybody shot chewed balls?
4: Yeah, I used to shoot chewed balls in my uh trade gun, a uh, 20 gauge trade <laughs> gun.
6: <instead> of, <laughs> I was yeah. gonna say the only person I know is uh Nathan Kobuck, but uh, well, geez, you're from Pennsylvania, you
4: might know yeah. the guy. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the name's familiar. <laughs> the, uh, now you take uh, a, a ball that was instead of leaving room for patch, you take a slightly undersized ball and put it in between two bastard files and roll it around until it got all gnarly and chewed up. And that would uh, create enough like pairs out or like uh, knurls sticking out from the ball that it would be a, a, a relatively tight fit down the bore, but you could still load it. Um, so you do, you'd knurl those balls up like that and then dip them in whatever you use for your, your, uh, your lube, your, what we normally use for patch lube. And then you can, you know, I always put a little piece of toe down in front of it to, you know, on top of the powder charge. So I wasn't contaminating my powder charge and then would shove that knurled ball full of, full of lube down on top of it. And it works pretty well. You have to, you have to swab pretty about two shots. all so you're getting between swabs on that method, but
1: I've never done that. what Is there a particular purpose for that, or is it just to make smaller balls fit in the right barrel?
4: well, instead of instead of patching in a smooth bore, um, oh. sometimes you'll get um, better accuracy out of running a chewed ball than mm. you would out of patching it just because there's there's less give because without rifling, um, the patch, the ball has to be either very undersized, right? to get it down there smooth with a regular sized patch or the patch has to be really thin. Um, and if you use a thin patch, you can get pretty good results too, but this does deals away with the compression of the patch and there's, there's no, you know, the rifling doesn't engrave on, or there's no rifling to engrave on, on, on the ball or, 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 to grip the patch. So, um, the knurled ball gives you a really close fit in the bore, but still allows you to load it because it's not really the the full ball diameter that you're ramming down there. It's just those little knurled edges that you've raised. Mm-hmm.
6: I mean, it all started with, you know, quick follow-up shots. I mean, the balls literally were chewed shoot because guys were keeping them in their mouth.
4: Okay. Well, speaking of lead practices.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no
4: joke.
2: All right, so here's the question that uh, we, we've, we've swapped around the campfire uh, a few times, and that's uh, the old frontiersman skill of loading on the run and what different people's interpretation of that is. I, I contend that at a sprint, especially over uneven terrain, uh, I, I just don't think it's consistently possible. So I think a run was probably uh, a trot, but when I get the hive mind Yeah and, and, you
6: know there's there's lots of things that well, it just doesn't it's not very safe. Um, but uh, you know, spitting the ball in your hand and covering it with powder poured directly out of the, out of your horn, and then throwing that down the barrel. I mean, that's probably what was done, but,
4: you know. I've read accounts of uh, riflemen when the bore got too filed and they still had to keep firing, um, just basically doubling the powder charge and dropping a bare ball down. Um, and I've tried that, and it 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 works um you You have musket accuracy and and musket range, and your velocity is significantly affected, but I wouldn't want to get hit with it, so I mean maybe that's
3: a method to to be able to yeah. do it on the run I've only tried
5: doing it once, and it was not a positive outcome, so I quit doing it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I've unintentionally tried to do it as I'm running after an animal that uh, I want to make, see where it's going and try and get a follow-up shot to put it down for good, but usually unnecessarily, but uh, usually tripping over my ramrod and my rifle stock at the same time. Well, <laughs> there,
5: There's that there's that safety aspect of it that, you know, 200 years ago it probably was an issue about if you were really in a fight, you were going to pour directly from your container right down the bore. And, yeah. and and load and go Count and, three <laughs> and you know i think all of us grew up learning that that is an absolute no no um because there could be that latent little teeny ember da- down in there and you know we've all heard stories about someone who, who did it and their powder horn blew the blew the base out of it so
4: mm-hmm. uh, i don't well, know let me the military loading methodology of the day was to prime the lock first, right? So you'd bite the tail off the yeah. cartridge, you prime the lock, yep. close the lock, and that is absolutely a no-no right now, right? So you want the lock open, mm-hmm. um, and the hammer completely down, and the pan clear uh, before you drop your charge down the main. And the last thing you do is the prime, but it was the first thing they did in, in military loading
3: regimens. Lock and load, one round. Indeed. <laughs> lock first, then load. <laughs> That's the other side of it that I think is, yeah, I mean, you're handling loose powder,
4: right? So there's some certain, there's certain safety precautions that you need to observe there. Um, especially because black powder is a little more touchy than, than smokeless powder, right? It doesn't require confinement uh, to be potentially nasty to you because it burns. It's, you know, such a you know high, high rate of combustion. Um, and it's really easy to set it off static, all that stuff, right? Maybe not as easy as, you know,
2: it's, it takes something, but uh, you certainly can't be sloppy. Now I can attest uh, last February, so just, just under a year ago, uh, archaeological dig at work, and it was the last hole of the dig. And the uh, guy with the metal detector had a pretty, pretty solid signal. Uh, I was actually doing the digging uh, for him, and dug down 11 inches and cylindrical base uh, started to appear. So I started digging around the cylindrical base. It was in, you know, it was the, the base of what wound up being a um, parrot shell from the Civil War. And, and uh, ran my fingers up the side and realized that there was more than a couple of inches of, uh, of iron still there. And that's usually indicative of an of a intact uh, UXO because of the way they were perforated and scored uh, to break. If there's more than an inch or two at the base, it's probably still intact. So uh, we wound up getting it out, getting uh, EOD out to take, which probably seems like a lot, right? 150 plus years of being 11 inches underground, um, you know, a fuse system in the nose, that has been underground. But uh, what I can tell you is ultimately um Hitting it with an old perforator charge uh, to to demill it, it, it went high order. And that black powder that was inside, I have it in my office still. As a matter of fact, and still smells like the sulfurous black powder uh, that it would have smelled like when it was initially loaded all those years ago. Um, so, black powder, unlike smokeless powder, can actually get more volatile as it gets wet and dries out. And uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, it seems like it's this primitive type of thing maybe like a, a, a almost a fun fun product, but uh, it'll bite you. Even if you're just shooting blanks out of muzzle loaders, you can still get up to 16 feet of flame coming out of that muzzle, uh, depending on what your powder charge is. Well, an aspect of powder that if someone
5: has shot, you know, and in line their entire life, they may not know about loose powder is, you know, we don't run pellets in traditional muzzle loaders. They just, they, they just don't work. And what I've tried to explain to people, you know, loading loose powder in these types of firearms, it's by volume and not by weight, I get the Forrest Whitaker eye going on. They're like, what? <laughs> and, 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 and it's like, no, you, you're not gonna weigh out 80 grains of black of double F black powder and put down this. You've got this little tube that has, you know, some marks on it, or, you know, maybe an antler tip if you went really crazy and, 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 and drilled it out, but that's what you use. Um, because there is a difference in, in how much pressure and how much velocity you're going to get with, 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 that. And that is a safety consideration people need to understand. And the caveat on that, if you ever come out West, there are, someone's going to check me and, and I may or may not, and I may be wrong on this, but I know there are. So Colorado, if you're shooting a muzzleloader, you, um, I believe it's open sights and loose powder. Um, Idaho may be the same thing I'm not 100% they they used to be that you know so if you do come out west to hunt and um, you are bringing an, an in inline you need to make sure you understand that depending on the rules on the state you're going to have to learn how to use loose powder and how that's loaded and it is different than your than your pellets and it is different than, than reloading a center
3: fire cartridge And Always I hope from, I the measure, from the measure and not the horn, keep the horn away from the muzzle
2: load from the measure. Keep the, uh, keep the muzzle
3: uh,
2: out of your face, you know, hold it out at an angle. So <laughs> if, if it does go off, it's not uh, going on up your nostrils. Yeah, I mean, there's
4: a ton of these little safety things that, uh, and that's one of the reasons why mentorship or, You know, some kind of treatise on on the activity is uh, is important, and and preferably not one from the uh, the 18th century, as the safety standards were different back then. But uh, there's lots of good information on there on how to do this these things safety safely, and a mentor still is the best
3: way to do it. But uh, there is there are you know there's a ton of YouTube videos that are pretty decent out there. Help you get on your way. If you happen to be on Facebook, we do have a hunting group, just so you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So what else do you guys have?
4: Uh, We talked a lot about uh, black powder. Uh, what, uh, What broadheads you
3: guys all use with traditional? I use bear razor heads this year,
6: but I was also hunting with a 66 Kodiak that came to me uh, from my dad's best friend growing up. And so I really wanted to keep it. I, I, I hate to, this sounds like I'm, you know, cosplaying 1960s, but I guess I was because um, it was, you know. Port Orford Cedar Shaft, Bear Head, 1966
3: bow. Um, I just got six uh, Woodsman, Wenzel
6: Woodsman heads, uh, actually from Gene from before him and Barry sold the company to Three Rivers. Um, and so
3: I'm going to try those out. Um, and, and of course, the wikis. I use a lot of grizzlies. Um, they they've worked pretty well. It's the other thing is it's you, <laughs> with traditional heads,
4: uh, you aren't taking them out of the pack and and uh, screwing them on and 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 going and and shooting your game. They they don't necessarily come sharpened. So, right. Some of that that goes on.
6: Well, and you know, I I like to take them out. Mount them up, and then I'll I'll shoot them for a month or two before the season. Even though it even though it's the same weight as the field point I took off, I still think that a broadhead a broadhead flies
3: differently, and you have to learn that arrow. So yeah, I'm a wiki guy too, but but again,
1: I haven't shot. I haven't done much bow hunting in several years, but back when I was, it was wiki is what worked well for me. And I did the same thing you described, Fred. I would always shoot my broadheads before season, and then sharpen them back up because, yeah. again, it's a if it's it's a different arrow with a field point versus a broadhead on it.
4: Yeah, and if you've got your 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 sight picture in your mind's eye, right where you're looking equated to one and the other is slightly different and you've wasted a lot of time. So definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's also different with the, uh, just the, the, you know, the killing power right on, on the, the methodology of penetration and a, a heavy slow arrow running, you know, 170 feet per second is, is actually quite good at penetration. I mean, you got pass throughs on, you know, three quarter shots with a, uh, you know, six, hundred and change grain arrow uh with a you know a giant old you know the the long tapered kind of point that uh you know whatever theory you want to ascribe to that and i forget what the actual aspect is it but it's about a 30 degree angle on the point there but uh they actually go through animals really really well
2: it's not you know you're not relying on velocity I've, uh, I've remained pretty traditional, um, with mine. They're all stoned, uh, either shirt oh, wow. or quartz, uh, tips. Um, they're river cane arrows. There's two, two Turkey feathered fletch, which is, which are the common southeastern style of, uh, of fletching. Um, you know, if you try to get too much into grain weight and stuff on the, on the arrowheads themselves, you try to get into weight or spine, um, rigidity of arrows. It just, it, it, it's too inconsistent to be able to do that. Um, now I've made a few arrows myself, but, but truthfully, a lot of what I get is from uh, Ryan Gill, Ryan Gill's primitive archery. Uh, he is on Facebook for those that want to look and he's done a lot of research. Um, he's taken bison with uh, either one of his primitive bows or an atlatl. I don't remember. Um, he's got a full video set on YouTube uh, flint napping, arrow making, um, everything's tied on with white tail sinew glued on with, uh, with a pine pitch resin. Now, uh, side note, they're all, you know, with the exception of the ones with field tips glued on for, for just general shooting, uh, your hunting arrows are going to be basically a one-time use. So don't get, uh, don't get attached to your arrows. Well, uh, with the slightly less traditional than that, that's some straight old school
4: stuff, man. Kudos on that. The, uh, I mean, POC shafts will last you uh, quite a long time as long depending on what you hit. I mean, if you chunk one into a rock, you're going to get splinters, but, uh, they're not that hard to not that hard to make. I have a spine checker and a spinner and the whole deal. And with, uh, POC shafts and I still use plastic knocks and the whole deal. And, but, you know, turkey feathers, you know, shield feathers and the whole deal. Um, but that I think is, is, is fun too. Making arrows is cool too. It's just like casting bullets for me, making the arrow that takes the animal is kind of adds a little something to it. So when I'm coming at this from
5: a longtime compound guy, coming back to back to traditional, and I'm going to caveat this by saying I've got a shorter draw length. So I have never really had hundred percent trust in mechanical broadheads for compounds. I've always shot a fixed head. Um, so for me, it was kind of natural just to keep what I was using with my compound with my, with my traditional stuff. So to give you an idea, um, this is what I shoot out of my compound. It's a 125 grain iron wheel fixed. So sharp cut on contact all the way to the tip. The traditional one I used this year was a 125 grain from day six. It looks very, very similar. This is the wide cut, and it did one hell of a number on that antelope. The other one that I wanted to use and didn't get a chance to was a three-blade uh Woodsman uh blood blood something. Wicked, wicked broadhead. And once I put an edge on it, it's 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 scary sharp. And What really got me thinking about it is, um, my wife shoots short, draw length, very low poundage. And honestly, her speed is about what my recurve is. So I've always kind of take when I set her stuff up. I would set it up how I ended up setting up my recurve stuff. And that was a heavyish arrow with a sharp cut on contact head. So for me, from my compound to my recurve stuff, everything just kind of translated over if that. If that makes sense uh, and, and it, it seems to work it, it seems to have worked really really well for me so far and everybody i've talked to that's the exact same thing you know guys shooting 170 feet per second with a you know 480 to 500 feet five grain arrow they're blowing through animals i'm like and yet you watch the hunting shows on tv and guys shooting modern compounds shooting whitetail out of tree stand at 10 yards and they're barely getting, you know, six inches of penetration on, on, on an animal. So, uh, I don't know the cut on contact hedge as sharp as I can get them has always made sense for me, both compound and, and recurve.
2: You know, one of the things that uh, I've, I've studied and looked at a good bit is also the for at least for me with the stone tips, the transition from tip to arrow is extremely important. So like, let's say that you just notch the top of your arrow and slap a, you know, broad head in there or slap a, an arrowhead in there and, and glue it in with some glue and then tie it down with some sinew. You create that shoulder where the end of the arrow and the, and the uh, arrowhead itself, the projectile meet. So shaving that down. So where there's a, a really smooth tapered transition from uh, from from point to arrow shaft really makes that uh, the potential for penetration you know minus uh, bone uh, cartilage, anything that that arrow hits and, I, and it seems that when you find like the little or see like the little bird points I think is, is what they're oftentimes called um, historically and people think they were used for for harvesting birds and they weren't they were actually used for harvesting you know white-tailed deer you know mule deer whatever. And it doesn't take, it doesn't take a lot on the end. It takes sharp. Um, it takes good shot placement and it takes a smooth transition between arrow shaft and arrowhead to get the arrow as far into the animal as possible. But in terms of like cutting power, if you will, or whatever you want to call it, um, man, it just, it does not seem to take much for most North American undulate game. Obviously nothing bigger than that.
4: The other thing is arrow flight as well with uh, respect to penetration and with you know modern compound how you tune it so you're not fishtailing or porpoising uh, out of the bow. But uh, apart from setting your your knock height and your your shelf offset, the reality is you can you impart more of that with your fingers by jacking up your release than uh, than anything. So if you, if you don't have a good form and you don't have a clean release your arrow doesn't hit straight and then you don't have uh, you know good penetration as well. So form plays
3: into your, your ability to, to take games as well. And it's even harder
5: to get a consistent form, consistent least with a traditional bow than it is a compound. And that's been a very hard lesson for me to learn. Um, I got schooled on it pretty big. Um, you know, and, and I can, you give me a compound and I can, I, I can tune it easily, especially with the press, you know, doing all the, you know, whether it's twisting, twisting cables, doing all that other stuff, but finding an arrow that worked for my release, my poundage and, and that with, with, with the recurve, that was, that was a lot of work. That was an eye opener, mm. especially to get um, really good arrow flight and um, yeah, that's that that was that that was a whole new ball game to work and and to learn. That was that was amazing.
6: I assume you're you're shooting uh aluminum or or carbon
1: with your traditional or
5: I'm shooting carbon right right now. I do have a pile of uh, about three different three or four different grades of of aluminum that I'm going to play with mm-hmm. this year. Just just to see how the, um, mostly it's because I would just want to play with them. Right. And, and see what it's like. Um, I, I'm pretty invested with, with the carbon stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have, I haven't played with, 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 with Woody's at all. That's, I'm not, I'm not oh. sure I'm quite, I'm sure I'm not quite there yet. <laughs>
6: <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody. No, you I know, am. honestly, I, I, you know, I buy all my, Port Orford's it's always been, you know, I buy them 50, 55 and I shoot them just fine in all, all the way up 30 to 50. And uh, so it, uh, I have,
5: I have been told they seem to be a lot more forgiving than, than, than some of the others. Do, do, do you, do do you find that
6: true or false? I don't have enough experience with carbons. Okay. Honestly. Um, And uh, aluminums were brand new when I was a kid, so to speak, and very expensive. And we made our arrows at home out of wood. And so, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I always get my arrows at 29 because I figure when I'm stump shooting, I'm, uh, I'm going to hit a rock and break it before, before season. And then I just cut it back and glue a new point on it and it's the right length. So, okay. So yeah, that's they're They, I guess you would say they are forgiving because they will take that impact, that impact and, and break. And you just, I've got a, uh, a taper tool and glue in my quiver. I mean, I can literally, Sit down, retaper my arrow, and glue a point on
4: in the woods. So I've got a cheater rig that is uh is carbon arrows and a uh, three rivers uh, aluminum riser longbow that I still shoot off the shelf, you know, bare bow. Mm-hmm. But uh the the carbon shafts are definitely more consistent for me uh than anything I the best arrows that I can make out of wood. Um so if I if I don't want to go full, full, you know, Howard Hill, then that's that's the rig I grab just because of the ease and consistency. My groups are tighter and the whole deal. I just so it is kind of nice, but I think I'm, I'm not cheating that much, right? Well, <laughs> still, I, still a bare bow.
5: Yeah. Well, and I I, I stuck with carbons and be, like I said, I, I use the exact same broadheads that I use with with my compounds because I like the fact that with a with a carbon arrow. You know, I can add, you know, a weighted collar to it. I can use a heavier insert so I can get the weight on the front up to where the arrow tunes for how I shoot and get the total arrow weight up to where I want it just by adding some components on the front, which I've kind of always just messed with. So it just kind of
2: made, made sense to me.
0: Well, unfortunately I think Craig is going to turn into a pumpkin so we have a choice. We can continue or we can call it and then have an, an additional discussion. If you guys want, what sounds good to you?
4: I'm extraordinarily flexible, but I don't think anybody's going to be able to listen to me run my suck anymore for <laughs> one sitting. <laughs> yeah. I think people uh, are yeah. waiting to
0: hear about the Magpul black powder and the Magpul bows and arrows. <laughs>
4: Uh, that's, that's no was, separation. Believe me, I'm still all about whacking hogs at night on a the thermal and with a, you know, PBS 30, our <laughs> 25 as well. But, uh, um, I, I like this stuff to It's, you know, same thing. If, if It's your day job, right? And you're totally engrossed in that. and yes. I love it and always will. Um, but you know, sometimes it's nice to change things up a little bit and understanding how things were done previously gives you a kind of a greater appreciation for where we're at now.
0: I don't think Fred acknowledges or identifies with that at all. <laughs> that, no that that that's totally, That's exactly that was yeah
2: where I am. That uh... I was I was starting to, well in the uh, archery conversation there. I was starting to feel like the guy with the uh, rental motorcycle at uh, Stur- uh, Sturgis. And, yeah, Sturgis. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, I've got a blah blah blah, and I'm like, I have a gray one. That's right. Uh, it's pretty
1: cool. Yeah. That's me too, man. That's me too. I got lost there. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot listening to you all talking about arrows and bows and broadheads though. That was good stuff.
0: So before we end, let's get some final thoughts from everyone and also make sure you plug whatever you want to plug. Um, and once it's done, we can discuss, okay, what's the next thing for us to talk about? Because we probably need to talk about some tracking and that kind of stuff. And I don't think Craig or Anthony would be interested in those topics at all. So, (laughs) (laughs) so final thoughts, Craig, since you got to take off, what do you have for us? Final thoughts and plugs.
1: Um, Again, it's just a pleasure being among like-minded folks. It was really interesting. It's uh, I saw several things that were brought up among us and everybody's nodding heads. And it's like, we're all in agreement on some very interesting things. Like we all want to use actual black powder and stuff like that. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I love keeping the history. So thank you, gentlemen. Uh, it was a pleasure being with you all. And thanks for everybody that's joined in and watching and listening in later too. It's we got to keep these skills alive, you all in these firearms and that sort of thing. And so if you're anywhere in the neighborhood of any of us on the panel, then give us a shout, an email. Uh, you can reach me at naturereliance.org. That's my website. If if I'm not near you, then I will try to find somebody to get you connected with black powder and, and traditional archery. I know a lot of people, as as all these guys do, we will do whatever we can to get you connected. Love to help you. Cool.
0: Fred? Um,
6: final thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, oh, you're coming brilliant. back. Oh, it's, it's been very, uh, very enjoyable.
0: And uh, join the NMLRA. There, there's my plug. Cool. Yeah, I think we're going to need to have you come back either talking about fine-tuning rifles or talking about night vision. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Talk about some day jobs type stuff.
6: Oh, well, okay. All right. Or maybe bushcraft or something. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that actually <laughs> that falls perfectly with some of the topics we've been talking about. So absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Justin? Um, I think the most the, the biggest
5: thing is when it comes to either of these sports, sport, pastime, lifestyle, whatever it is, is um practice. Um uh, i always preach to the guys that come into my shop that archery is a year-round sport you know whether you're shooting at a bag at 10 feet in your garage you know and, and until the snow melts and you can get you know you can put your targets out and shoot and start shooting f- further further out you know and just you know continue to work on it be a student of it um it is it is truly being being a student a lifelong student whether it's learning how to work on your bow whether it's w- learning how to build arrows whether it's learning how to fine tune the load on your muzzle loader. I mean, it's, it's, it's just being a student of it and, you know, just, just get out there and do it. And the history act aspect of it is pretty dang cool. Um, especially if you read, you know, some of the historical accounts, um, you know, the dark and bloody river is one of my favorite books to read, you know, about the, about the Ohio Indian war, you know, and just some of that, you know, and even Jeremiah Johnson, I mean, so I do have a small little segue. There's a line in Jeremiah Johnson where they're walking behind a horse, and he's getting ready to shoot an elk, and he goes to stand over the top of the saddle, and he says, "No, nope, no, nope, no! Nope, come around the front of it." And some effect of you know, well, won't he see our feet? Well, elk don't know how many feet a horse has. <laughs> I shot my buck antelope this year by standing in a herd of horses as, and using them as a live decoy as they walked by me and, and thump, thumped him at some odd yards. And the minute that happened, that's the line that went through my mind was antelope don't know how many feet a horse has. So, um, <laughs> but just practice, embrace it and have fun with it. Don't, don't take it too, too seriously. Ask a lot of questions. Yeah, that's it.
2: Awesome. Moose sometimes when you want to get ahead, you got to go backwards. And, um, you know, if you feel like you've plateaued in some of your shooting sports, whether it's archery, uh, you know, compound archery or something like that, I encourage you to, to take a few steps backwards and, uh, kind of learn, uh, learn where it all came from and, those fundamental skills that you'll develop translates so well into so many other things. And if nothing else, it translates well into patience. Um, because, you know, just because this skill is primitive certainly doesn't make it easy or simple. Um, so get out there there's, I mean, we have YouTube for goodness sakes, right? It's the most prolific educational platform in the history of mankind. So, you know, get out there and learn, don't hesitate, uh, and I'm on Facebook. I don't have a special page set up yet. I'm hoping to get something uh, set up on some historical stuff here pretty soon. But uh, my day job takes over. Um, if you find me, Anthony Moose Weiniger on there, hit me up, send me a message, whatever. If I can help, I will. Um, but you've got some powerhouses on here that know a whole lot more than I do, and I appreciate being a part of it.
4: And Dwayne. Man, Moose took a lot of what I was gonna say there. That's uh, that's really, I mean, the the whole idea of um, if you need to refresh, kind of where you're at, and and uh, if if something's getting monotonous, doesn't have the same joy in it, you know. Just, I mean, there's tons of ways to make it harder and more rewarding, and I think going back in time like that really does kind of step up the uh, steps up the fun factor for me. It certainly is more challenging you're going to be processing a lot less game (laughs) and and hunting for them a lot more um when when you go to these more primitive methods of take uh but uh, the reward is just amazing and learning new stuff is just cool to me i've been a lifelong student of so many things just learning new things like this the the things that that pay forward into other aspects of your life are um you know incalculably valuable it's um it's some good stuff, and you know, I'm I'm on the book of face. Um, so glad if, uh, if anybody on here uh, from PNS wants to reach out for the same kind of things. So offers that have been extended, glad to do that. If you're in my area or point somebody in direction or, or answer questions, uh, I I tend to go completely overboard into the technical side of any activity that I, I get involved in. Um, so I might be able to help with with uh, a question or two. Uh, and, uh, for everybody else, this is of course, Magpul shot week. So, uh, if you're watching this live or recently, uh, we're releasing a bunch of our new products this week and, uh, you know, check us out for everything in your modern firearm and other accessory needs at, uh, Magpul.com.
0: I don't know the case that, that, that kind of, that could work with black powder.
4: Yeah. I had to make the, make sure that the LR 53 was big enough to fit a sharps, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's still a little bit short for anything except for my Isaac Haynes uh, long rifle. It's a little bit on the short side. So 38 inch barrel.
0: That and your new grid system.
4: Grid system's awesome. And that is applicable for just about any firearm. That's going to be, that's, that is so cool. If uh, anybody that's going to SHOT Show, we've got a bunch of those systems out for people. So you can see content in addition to what we've produced in in house on that system and how it works. But, uh, shot show, we built a giant Lego table. So it's essentially there's four stations with giant bins full of the blocks and the whole grid system. So come check it out and play with it if you're at shot show. And if not, I'm sure there'll be plenty of coverage from there and, and, and plenty of folks like PNS. You got you have one on the way. So, um, it's super excited about all that. Bunch of new stuff coming, uh, through the rest of the week, uh, AR accessories and things. And this is a different year for us. We've been bit bitten too many times with uh, some supply chain things, and some of it, you know, it's we're past a lot of the COVID stuff. But like even like the hunter stocks for the Savage 110, the uh, every time we increase our casting capacity, or anodizing capacity to be able to meet the demand, people order more of the Legacy stocks. So <laughs> Savage 110 and the and the, the American with the uh, with the Stanag Magwell have been biting us for a long time, but we're just about out there on that. So we're taking attack this year of only talking about products that are just about to production release where we start building them and much closer to shipping time. So we're not talking about a lot of things. We have just under 50 firearms products uh, in development right now. We'll be releasing and announcing and hopefully shipping uh, over two dozen of those this year, as well as all the, the accessory and gear categories, uh, DACA and, and, and things like that, DACA hard cases, DACA grid for everything. be grid everywhere.
0: And I got to ask, because I know someone's going to bring it up, folding PDWs yet?
4: Oh, yeah. So the uh, CFTC FTP, um, there'll be uh, later this week, we'll have an update on that, that uh, you'll be able to see and and touch fully molded and, you know, kind of the final form of of that firearm. Everything's, you know, molded and we're just doing final tweaks and functional stuff. So it is, you know, a full firearm. So, you know, we're doing our own internal testing for our aspects of it. Zev doing um, theirs because it will be sold as a Zev firearm. But That'll be out before the end of 2023, uh, shipping to the public. We also see updates for the X4S and the rounds remaining system. There at SHOT Show. You'll be able to go hands-on on that stuff. And you'll see the commercial form. Well, last year, we showed the technology with like an umbilical and some things like that that were, you know, a, a, kind of a, a, an inside the magwell antenna. But uh, now this is the this is the final form of the product that you'll see with the pistol grip and the bolt uh, location indicator and, and all the stuff that's actually going to be in the final form that you'll be able to buy. Once again, hopefully before the end of the year for that whole system, so
0: people can play Call of Duty in real
4: life. I mean, call it what do you want to call it—Call of Duty or Halo or anything like that. I mean, the the calculations, especially when you're starting talking about off-axis and, and and stuff like that, and compensating for cant and the X4S and range when you use the incorporated rangefinder and kind of an indication of rounds remaining, both from your total loadout and from the magnets in the gun.
2: It's it's pretty cool. <laughs>
0: I don't know. I think that's an understatement, but that's just me. Cool. Well, great discussion. Thanks guys. Uh, thanks for listening. If you happen to listen, thanks for watching. If you watched uh, shout shout to our sponsors, big, thank you to big techs ordinance, overwatch precision filster, primary arms, Walther, huge. Thank you to the Patreon subscribers, Patreon subscribers. You have the opportunity to watch these live. You can bring up questions. You also get access to this once it's edited, uh, prior to anyone else. Matter of fact, you Patreon people, you've been getting a steady stream of videos early. Right now, there's a a Buffalo Boar video that you have access to that probably is going to be released in about two weeks. So yeah, there's some benefits to being a Patreon subscriber, supporter. Basically what it does also for primary and secondary, it allows me to buy stuff for testing. It allows me to (laughs) cover all the costs of this whole damn thing. You know, hosting and editing software and everything. Uh, Also, we have some cool projects because of it. Uh, We're able to get all that Buffalo Bore ammo for our shoots. Uh, Planning out another shoot uh, next year, or excuse me, this year. And uh, Patreon subscribers will be invited. Uh, Quick code, P-N-S, all caps, 10, at Scallywag Tactical gets you 10% off if you need a knife. I like their knives. I I carry one of their folders. It's, it's, It's a decent blade. Um, I think that's pretty much it. The thing I forgot to say at the beginning is make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. So if you like what these guys have had to say, make sure you find them on social media, make sure you give them like subscribe, share. If it's, if it's beneficial to you, if this if this video has been helpful for you, make sure you're sharing it. You it's, it's been two hours. You probably should have already liked it. Uh, subscribe if you haven't already, uh, I think that's pretty much it. We're going to continue on with this trend. Uh, we're not always focusing on the latest and greatest with guns, gear, all that kind of stuff. It's nice to take a step back and talk about these these more primitive, basic things, because these are the roots. These are where we came from. And these guys had some great points as to why this might be something you might be interested in. So that is all. I'll talk to you later.